those of you that were working in a different part of the, the building this morning, uh, Pastor Frank is doing a camp in Kansas, and uh, I know that he would covet your prayers this week for him. Uh, he's there with Cam South and his youth group and with uh, hundreds of other teenagers from oh, Kansas, New Mexico, and Missouri, all of those, those parts. So if you would keep Frank in your prayers this week. And uh, for those of you who weren't here this morning or, or you know, work in another part of the building, maybe you're a guest, what we did is we came to the book of Revelation chapter 1. We, we picked up the pace considerably this morning. In fact, by the time we're, we're done here in just a few minutes, <coughs> um, we, will, we will have concluded chapter 1 and next, next Sunday we'll be moving into to chapter 2. But, but let's all get our bearings once again. I, I appreciate you being here tonight, and I appreciate your hunger, your desire for the Word of God, for the Spirit of God to work in your life. But what is, what is taking place here is, is here is John, the, the Apostle John. We, we talked this morning, we sang about it just a second ago, about this disciple who had, of all of the disciples, the most intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we talked about all of the ways that the, the Scripture details that for us. Uh, I, it all culminates, I guess, I, I think the thing that, that just makes me just kind of step back in awe of this dude, John, is, is the fact of, of him laying his head on, on Jesus' breast. I'm telling you, can you imagine? Can you imagine? And number one, just, just feeling that way about another man, feeling the freedom to be able to do that. Now, in this culture, I don't want you laying on my breast now. <laughs> don't even be getting there. But you know what? It's a whole different It's a whole different deal. whole different deal with what was going on with, with Jesus. It was that, that moment of intimacy as Jesus was with his 12 disciples. He's telling them about what is about to take place as he will soon become the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He's talking to those men and here is John as he's saying those very words, and he is with his head on his breast, hearing the very heartbeat of God. Here is John, who knew the Lord like, like nobody else probably knew the Lord. Here is John, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 17, he along with, with Peter and James are taken up to a mountain. And you know what's wild? is John saw the Lord there the same way that he sees him here in Revelation chapter 1. But you know what? It's different now. It's different. And some of you really need to listen to that. Because some of you have been around for a while. You've been exposed to the, the greatness, the majesty, the glory, the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've seen that. But maybe you've never really seen it. You, you know what happened to John? John saw Jesus Christ transfigured before him. What, he, what John received along with Peter and John or James was a preview of the glory that is Jesus Christ tonight in heaven. But his problem at that point was he wasn't spiritually mature enough to be able to handle 
what it was that he was seeing things are different when you come to revelation chapter one john is not just seeing it john is seeing it and i hope when we're done tonight i hope that you know what i mean by that we talked about the recipient of the revelation in verse 9 john addresses himself as our brother john who also am your brother and we talked about the the unbelievable humility of this incredible guy just addressing himself as our brother he says your companion in tribulation in the kingdom of jesus christ and in the patience of jesus christ then we look at the location of the revelation geographically and physically what john was on the isle of patmos and we talked about why he was there he was there for the word of god and for the testimony of jesus christ he had been exiled to the island of patmos by domitian the roman emperor to shut his mouth to to cease his effectiveness for the lord jesus christ and and yet god has him there for those very same purposes for the word of god because what he's going to do is he is going to write the last book in the word of god which is going to be the spirit of prophecy the testimony of jesus as revelation chapter 19 and verse 10 says then we talked about how geographically he was in the isle of patmos but what takes place while he's there geographically and physically is spiritually he's in another place and he is transported spiritually to the day of the lord he says in verse verse 10 i was in the spirit on the lord's day and we talked about that's not the first day of the week it wasn't just a real buzz that he was on after going to the services one sunday He's talking about spiritually he has been catapulted, transported to another period of time, to the time of the day of the Lord. Then we talked about the destination of the revelation. What, what he is told is he is told in, in verse 11 that what he sees, he is to write in a book and to send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia Minor, and he lists them there. And we began to talk about and we'll see this in further detail as we move through those seven churches in chapters two and three in the next several weeks but there are several applications you see there were folks listen there were a whole lot more than seven churches in that part of asia minor during that period of time there was a slew of churches there but he calls out seven the number seven the number of completion and perfection god's letting you know something of why there's just seven churches in the three applications of scripture will reveal all of that that for us and now we, we come to the part that uh, really all of that has just kind of been setting the stage all of that has just been in the things that god ha has led us to, to be able to see to prepare us for what he really wants us to see here and that is the person of the revelation the person of the revelation number four or roman numeral four on your outline and of course the person of the revelation is the risen and glorified lord jesus christ and, and we'll see first of all the identity of his person look, look at verse 12 john says and i turned to see the voice that spake with me now let me just ask you something have you ever seen a voice look at the verse again i, I mean what john says it's not the normal way of saying it i mean 
We'd say, I heard a voice, and I turned to see the one that spake with me. Isn't that what we would say? Oh, that must be that, that old archaic King James English there. You don't see a voice. That is, unless the voice is a person, right? And you see, that's exactly who Jesus is. He is the voice of God. The voice of God is a person. John chapter 1 and verse 1 calls that person what? The Word. Do you see that? You don't, no one has a voice without words. The voice of God is a person in John chapter 1 and verse 1. The voice of God is also a person who walks. Have you ever seen that thing? Back over there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 where it talks about that Adam and Eve, listen to it, Adam and Eve heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now again, listen to the words there. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. How does a voice walk? A voice walks if it's a person. And that's who Jesus Christ is. He is the Word of God. He is the voice of God who walks. He's also identified as the Son of Man. Go on in verse 12. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, verse 13, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now, now a lot of people get confused on, on this, this whole thing with Jesus being identified as the Son of Man. Now, a lot of the, the people in the cults, what they're going to constantly throw up to you is, hey, what did Jesus call himself? He called himself the Son of Man. And you know what? It's true. One of the favorite titles that the Lord Jesus Christ used to refer to himself was just that, the Son of Man. And you see, it sounds like it's a whole, uh, a whole lot contradictory with another term that you see used in reference to Christ, that he is the Son of God. And you see, Son of God sounds a whole lot like he's God. Son of Man sounds a whole lot like he's man, right? But you see, the thing that you need to understand about the Word of God is that to the Jews who Jesus came to this planet and was ministering to, to the Jews, the term Son of Man carried unbelievable significance because centuries before, the prophet Daniel had given a very famous prophecy under inspiration of, of God concerning the Jewish Messiah. And in that prophecy, in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, the Messiah, God in human flesh, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, He is called in that verse the Son of Man. So now, now catch this. To the Jews, the title, the Son of Man, wasn't a denial of Christ's deity. It was rather an affirmation of his deity he was the son of man that was prophesied way back in daniel's prophecy god who would come to this planet in a human body so, so do you see what what john is, is is saying here he is the the voice of god the word of god and he is the son of man and 
now, now think with me, y'all. Those are the very same components that John had nailed down in the very first chapter of his gospel, isn't it? John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14 says, And the Word, Jesus Christ, and the Word, God, was made flesh. And it's the same exact thing here. The voice of God, who is the Son of Man. The Word of God, who is made flesh. And that's the person that John sees here the identity of his person. And look next at the location of his person. Look at where John says he is. Look at the middle of verse 12 again. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. You say, well, what, what, what do you think, Pastor Mark? What, what do you think the seven golden candlesticks are right there in that verse? You know what? It doesn't matter what I think it means, right? Because verse 20 tells you what they are. And you see, and, and let this be a lesson to you about the book of Revelation. People get all wigged out and say, oh my goodness, man, there's so many symbols in that book. And, you know, you come to it, and the deal is they don't read enough. They don't study enough. Most of the, the symbols that are in this book are clearly defined right in this book. You don't have to be going, wow wonder what that is and the things that you see that aren't clearly identified you know what if you'll employ the principle that god laid down in first corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13 comparing scripture with scripture all of these things god has talked about in other places in the scripture so it's not left up to any of us to say well you know i think that this symbol is is this no v verse 20 nails what it is it, it, it tells you what these seven candlesticks mean what these seven candlesticks are look at verse 20 the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand okay now a mystery is something that at one time was hidden and has now been revealed he's about to reveal it to you okay it may have been a mystery about three seconds ago but here it is now i'm going to reveal it to you john the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks the seven uh, stars are the angels of the seven churches. We'll hit that a little bit later. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And folks, it's just as easy as that. The seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches. The seven churches that he just mentioned back in verse 11. But we're looking at this. What we're trying to do is, is get the location. Okay, Where did John say jesus was you look at it he's in the midst of the seven candlesticks do you see what he's saying he's in the midst of his churches that's where you find jesus folks he's in the midst of his church in matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 when the church is carrying out its mission, its mission of making disciples in all nations, what did Jesus say? And lo, I am, say it, with you, even unto the end of the world. I'm going to be with you, church. When you are out there fulfilling the mission, I want you to know something. I'm right in the midst. I'm right there. I'm with you. 
In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, when the church is seeking to maintain its purity in cases of church discipline, what does Jesus say? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, for those of you who may be newer, you know, you'll, you'll hear every time that people are at a prayer meeting and, and not too many people show up, what you're going to hear is, well, you know what the Bible says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Well, let me just ask you this. <laughs> when you are in your prayer closet all by yourself, is he in the midst of you then? Okay, don't, don't, don't go to that, that verse in Matthew 18 and, and verse 20 and try to make that fit your the prayer meeting that wasn't well attended. What, what it's saying is in matters of church discipline. It, it's the first principle of Bible study, folks. It's context. But Jesus says there, because I want you to know, when you're carrying out the mission, when you're seeking to maintain the purity of the church, and guys, that's about all there is. In order to have a mission, in order to have something to say to the world, we've got to be a pure people. And Jesus says, you know what? When you keep your focus on those things, I want you to know, I'm right there in the midst. I'm with you even unto the end of the earth. And I'm telling you, is that not just an absolute trip to think that tonight, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how to explain it, I know that if we just sat here tonight and we tried to, to really comprehend it, I, I think it would just bless our absolute socks off. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is in our very midst tonight. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, you know what it says? It says that He walks in our midst. He, he walks. And, and man, not only is that an unbelievable thought, but what a, what a comforting thought that in these last days, as we're seeking as a church to maintain the purity of His body in this place, and as, as we seek to equip people of this church to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and, and as a church, as we go through times of adversity, and as we go through times of trial, the Lord Jesus Christ is letting us know here we don't go through that alone. And it's not that He's just watching us. It's not that He's just empowering us. He's with us. That's the location of His person. He's in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, you know, one of the questions that I, I had on this thing as I'm coming through and studying this is that if this is heaven then what are, these, what are these golden candlesticks doing there? Because we know that back in the, in the Old Testament, we know that the golden candlesticks, we've seen those before, haven't we? They were in the, in the tabernacle, right? They were in, in the temple. And what they were is they were a picture or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, if the Lord Jesus Christ is there and these things have always been a picture of Him, then why do you need them if you've got the reality there, right? You, you following what I'm saying? So, so what, what, what's, what's, what's this deal? And, and as we've gone through, and, and many of you have studied this, this thing of the, the tabernacle just recently, what we found is that gold symbolizes 
deity in the Bible. Those seven golden candlesticks back there, gold symbolized his deity. And the, the candelabra, the menorah, as the, the Jews would refer to it, the seven-branch candelabra, what it did is it was there and it served to illuminate the other objects that were in the holy place, symbolizing the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 1 and verse 9, John testified that Jesus Christ was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. But the question is, if the candlestick was a type of Christ, what is it that John is, is seeing as Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks? Well, in John chapter 9, in verse 5, Jesus added something to his statement in John chapter 8 and verse 12 where he talked about him being the light of the world. In John chapter 9 and verse 5, Jesus said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay? You following that? I'm the light of the world. And he comes right after it in the very next chapter, and he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, he left this world. He ascended back to the Father. And then you find in the book of Acts that the church was born on the day of Pentecost shortly after Jesus left this world. And he lets us know something about the church in the world through the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. And what he says over in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15 is that now, listen, now we, we as the church of Jesus Christ, we as individuals who make up his body, we shine as lights in the world. Now, he was the light of the world as long as he was in the world. But when he left, he left his church to now be the light of the world. But he's very careful in the wording of it in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. He says we shine as lights in the world. And he says it that way because we have no light of our own. We simply reflect his light. And what John is seeing here is something that represents what was going on in the earth in 95 AD and continues to go on all through the period, all through the history of the church, all the way up to 1997 AD. The fact that Jesus Christ is in the midst of His church on the earth, shining through them to light this dark world. That's what's going on. That's why the seven candlesticks are there. It all comes together as you begin to compare Scripture with Scripture. So, John hears his voice in verse 10. In verse 12, he turns to see the voice. And when he does... He sees the glorified Christ in the midst of the seven churches. And now in the middle of verse 13, John begins to describe him. And first of all, he describes the clothing of his person. He says that he saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps, or, or the breast, 
with a golden girdle. Now, those of you who are familiar with the, the Old Testament will recognize the clothing that John is describing here. It's very similar to the clothing that is worn by the high priest in the Old Testament. It's the same basic clothing here. And of course, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says, listen to it, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And like the high priest in the Old Testament who interceded on behalf of the people, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says that Jesus Christ, listen, ever liveth to make intercession for us. And, and here is John, 60 years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. And what is the very first thing that John, he hears the voice, he turns and he looks at him, and what is the very first thing that he notes about him? That he is our high priest in the heavens. And folks, if you were to go to heaven tonight, what has it been, 1960 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ, you know what you'd find? You know what the very first thing that you'd be overwhelmed with is exactly the same thing. He ever liveth to make intercession. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, since we have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities and he can relate to every single thing that we're going through in this life because he himself became a man. It says that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And folks, I don't know what it is you're facing. I don't know what it is that you may be going through, but I do want you to know that based on the revelation of what John saw, Jesus Christ tonight is in heaven clothed with the high priestly garments touched, touched by your situation. And he is just waiting for you tonight to come to him that you might obtain mercy, that you might find grace and help in your time of need tonight. He sees him clothed as our great sympathetic high priest. And then in verse four, verses 14 through 16, John begins to describe the sevenfold glory of his person. And now he's, he's, not, he's not describing what he heard now, he's not describing what he was wearing. He's describing now the Lord Jesus Christ glorified. First of all, he talks of his head and his hair. Verse, verse 14 says, His head and his hair, hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Okay, now, now his head and his hair being white like wool speaks of his age. He is the, the eternally existent one. You remember verse 8? He, he's the beginning and the ending. He's the one which is and which was and which is to come. Verse 11, 
He's the first and the last. He is the eternally existent one. His head and his hair is white as wool. But it also says that they are as white as snow, which of course speaks of his purity or his righteousness. Would you listen to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31? It says, The hoary head, okay, and for those of you, maybe young people who aren't familiar with the term hoary, H-O-A-R-Y, it, it means white, okay? And what proverb, listen to it, Proverbs sixteen thirty-one: The hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. And folks, with the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you, that hoary head is as white as snow because it is found in righteousness, having never sinned. But this also, what John is describing here, it also lets us know again who he is because the same description has been made in the Bible before. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, listen to what Daniel said. He said, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. And what's interesting is that Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, was speaking in that verse of God the Father. Remember just a minute ago we talked about that prophecy that Daniel gave of him being the Son of Man? That's just four verses away from, from this one. So we know that he's, what he's talking about here is, is God the Father. You say, well, you know, okay, what's up with that? I mean, D- Daniel saw the Father, and he sees him white as snow, white like wool. He sees the Ancient of Days. And you know what? John comes along, and in his revelation here, as he sees the glorified Christ, he sees him exactly the same way. John chapter 16, or chapter 10, in verse 30, what does it say? I and my Father are one. And it's, it's like what we saw several weeks ago. Remember when we were in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and Isaiah is talking about how he, he was caught up and he saw the Lord high and, and lifted up. And, and what he says there in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, it says that he saw the glory of Jehovah and he spoke of him and his glory. And yet when the Spirit of God records that uh, and, and talks about that in John chapter 12 and verse 41, what it says is that Isaiah saw Christ in his glory and spoke of him. And you see, it's the same thing here. Daniel saw the eternally existent one on his throne. He looked, he saw the Ancient of Days, he saw Jehovah God, And so did John. He saw the glorified Christ, Jehovah God. Next, his eyes. John says at the end of verse 14, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, symbolizing his justice. His eyes were as flames of fire. Song of Solomon chapter 5 and verse 12 in fact, verses 10 through 15 there in, in Song of Solomon give a description of the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly body. And I'll tell you this, if you go back and read it, it's nothing like the effeminate Jesus that Rembrandt painted. It's, it's nothing like that. He wasn't 
he wasn't of Irish descent. And you can go back, do it later, check it out in Isaiah, or, or uh, the Song of Solomon, in chapter 5. But in verse 12 of Song of Solomon 5, it describes his eyes when he was on the earth. And it says, his eyes are as the eyes of doves. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. John had looked into those eyes. He had seen those eyes. I mean, he was on his breast. I mean, all he had to do was just look up. He looked into those. John says, that's not the way his eyes were when I saw him. John says, "They they were as flames of fire. They, they were piercing eyes. I mean, eyes like an x-ray machine that just pierce you and cut you right down to the very depth of your soul. You know what, folks? The, the reason that, that some of you have a, a real difficult time, and I'm not trying to dog you here. I'm trying to help you. But the reason that some of you have such a hard time following the Lord is this very principle, this, this very characteristic of the glorified Christ because I want you to listen. We looked at this verse last week, but just listen to it. Psalm 32 in verse 8 God says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. Remember how he said he would do it? I will guide you I will guide thee with mine eye. Okay, now are you catching this? If you're going to follow the Lord, if you're going to get guidance from Him in, in your life, you've got to keep your eyes on His eyes because He says, I'm going to guide you with mine eye. And you see, some of you live with, with no guidance in your life because you have a real hard time looking into the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have a hard time looking into the eyes of the people around you. But there's a whole lot of people on this planet that name the name of Christ and call themselves a Christian that have a real hard time following the Lord because they cannot keep their eyes on Him because His eyes are His flames of fire that burn away all of the paper and the wrapping and the ribbon and all of the junk that we try to use to to camouflage our life to everybody else and make it look like we're all of this and we're all of that. And what happens when we get our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and those eyes of fire start burning down, what they do is they reveal our motives. They reveal to us what we really are. And you know what? Sometimes it's just a whole lot easier not to even face Him. So we don't go to this book. We, we don't come before Him and we don't look into His eyes because we're afraid that He is going to expose us and folks, listen, let's don't kid ourselves. Whether, whether we're looking at him or not, whether we're facing him or, or not, his eyes are still eyes of fire and they are still piercing us. They're still seeing all of the truth. Hey, listen, the best thing to do is just deal with it. Get your eyes on him. Let those eyes, let, let them pierce you. Let them expose you so you can deal with it, so that you can keep your eyes on him so that he can guide you with his eyes so that he can give you the direction so that you can follow the Lord. You've got to keep your eyes on him. 
And, and let, me just, let me just say this to you folks that may be here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I, I want you to know, one of these days, you are going to stand in the same place that John stood. You will stand before the glorified Christ and His eyes as flames of fire will pierce you and expose every single thing that you're trying to hide right now. There is coming a day. Now, this isn't real popular preaching today. We like the effeminate Jesus, don't we? We like to keep him, you know, posted up on the wall and yeah, yeah, yeah. But it ain't like that. His eyes are as flames of fire. And oh, guys, I'm telling you, I love it. Because do you know, do you know how much junk that he has had to look down on this earth and watch over the last 6,000 years of human history? I can't wait for those eyes to just start. It's a good thing I'm not God, man. And, and you know what? I'm real thankful that you aren't either because I'm telling you, we'd all be zapped off this place, right? I mean, we'd just be beaming people with our eyes. <laughs> Bam! Gone! Then, and next, in verse 15, his feet. John says, and his feet, like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. Brass in the Word of God clearly symbolizes God's judgment. It, it takes us back to the, to the altar of brass or the brazen altar in the Old Testament where the sacrifice was offered. You know, think on that. What is it that, that, that John was seeing? What is it the Lord is trying to, to communicate to us through that? What he's trying to communicate here, folks, is that the risen and glorified Christ stands in the midst of His churches on the basis of God's judgment upon sin that was carried out upon the cross of Calvary. That's why His feet are like unto fine brass. Because He Himself became sin for us. God's judgment upon sin was carried out upon His body upon Calvary's cross. And do you remember what it said in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that Satan would do? It would bruise his heel, his, his feet. And here, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ, through His death, His burial, and resurrection, you know what He did? He defeated Satan. He defeated death. He defeated hell and the grave. And when He ascended, He received the glory that has always been His as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And upon that fact, He stands tonight. He stands. His feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. And one of these days, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4 says that those feet, those feet like unto fine brass are going to step foot back on this planet it's going to be on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah said. And what's going to happen to the Mount of Olives when those feet of brass hit that thing? Do you remember what it says? It says that the Mount of Olives is going to split right in two. And let me tell you what's going to be right under his foot. 
Genesis 3.15. Satan's head. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross had his feet bruised by Satan in his earthly body, when he comes back to this earth in all of his glory, those feet of fine brass are going to crush his dirty, stinking head. Oh, man, his feet like unto fine brass and those eyes like flames of fire. And next, his voice. Man. John says at the end of verse 15, and his voice as the sound of many waters, which, of course, symbolizes his power. Uh, last summer, my, my family and I, we did the Niagara Falls gig. Um, you know what? All my life, I heard Niagara Falls and here, we live, what, five hours from it now, and we, we had never gone. It's something I, I, I wanted to do all, all my life. How many of you guys have, have done the Niagara Falls gig? Okay, almost all of us. And, and I don't know when, when you went, what you did, but we, you know, we took the boat deal. You know, uh, it, it kind of bugged me a little bit because we had to put on that, that nasty little raincoat thing, and, you know, it was like a, a hothouse in there. It was kind of bending my quaff just a little bit. The, the humidity and all of that kind of stuff, but it, it didn't it didn't cause me to to, to miss the moment. Uh, but you know, we, we we took that we took that boat in there, and, and man, you come you know like from about I, I don't know here to to that wall. I mean, it, it's it's like within fifty yards of this 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 thing, and I mean it it is to me. I mean, I'm freaked. I mean, it is just so incredible. Incredible, you know. I mean, they they pull you up in there, and I mean, it's like you know, all you can see from one side. You know how it curves around there from one side to another. Man, here's just all of this water that is just falling down, and the closer you get, man, I mean, the sound of that water coming down. I mean, it's like, I mean, you you can't even you can't even describe it, can you? I mean, it is just so in, incredible. It sounds like, like thunder. It, it, it's roaring. It, the power of the thing, it, it's almost breathtaking. It, it, it is breathtaking, man. I'm telling you, you just... <gasps> John says, that's the way his voice is. I mean, can you imagine? Just, I mean, he's, he's seen him and he's seen... That head, and seeing those eyes and those feet, and the voice is the sound of many waters. And next, his hand, verse 16, John says, and he had in his right hand seven stars. Now, in, in verse 20 that we, we read a couple hours ago there, the Lord tells us in verse 20 exactly what those seven stars are. He says very specifically in the middle of verse, verse 20, the seven stars, okay, now this is what's in his right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So we know the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, the big question comes with what does he mean when he says, Angels of these seven churches, and what you're going to see, look in, look in chapter two and verse one, unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, and then down to verse eight, and unto the angel of the church 
in Smyrna in verse 12 and unto the angel of the church in Pergamos. And I think you get the idea. All the way through, these letters to the seven churches are addressed to the angel of that place. Now, there's a lot of folks who, who want to say that, that who these angels are, are are the pastors of these seven churches. Now, I don't believe that myself. They're with the, the Laodiceans. What you're going to find in verse 16 is you've got an angel, you've got a pastor that is being spewed out of his mouth. Now, in Laodicea, I'll grant you, if, if a pastor got anywhere close to the Lord's mouth, he's going to barf, he's going to spew, he's going to spit, he's going to cough, he's going to whatever. You ain't going to keep him there. But you know what? You just got all kinds of problems with with a believer being in his mouth. We are the body of Christ. It's just difficult to go in there and, and make this angel a, a pastor. Okay, so if it's not that, then what is it? Okay, people talk about the word that it's, it's the word messenger. And angels many times are messengers. But if you begin to look at this, and, and we'll probably talk about this more because, I mean, angels are talked about about 50 times in the book of Revelation. And I want to get too far off of what we're seeing right here. But, but the, the term messenger does not always fit for an angel. I mean, sometimes angels did bring messages, right? I mean, we can go to Mary and remember that it was an angel that gave a message from, from God. But then there's other times that you see back there where angels were, were doing warfare, right? They weren't messengers at all. They weren't communicating to anybody on the earth. But there is one word that, that fits all the way through the Scripture, anywhere an angel shows up, and it's the word appearance. The word appearance. And if you just go through and you just begin to check that thing out, that is one that is consistent. And I believe what he is saying is that the appearance of the churches is right there before him in the very throne room of God. I, 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 believe, this about, I believe this about any church that has not been spewed out of his mouth. And basically, I believe that he said he'd be in the midst of a, a church that was maintaining its purity, seeking to carry out its mission. And you know what? It, it, it kind of freaks me out sometimes to think that there is an appearance of First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia, Ohio, in the very presence of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it freaks me out, and sometimes it's the most comforting thing in all the world to know that Jesus knows what's going on. You, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a real positive thing, but, ooh, buddy, it can be a pretty negative thing, too. It'll keep us on our toes. And I believe that that's what we're, we're dealing with there. He says they're, they're in my right hand. Then next, his mouth. The second part of verse 16 says, And out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. And there's no doubt about what that is, right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The sharp, two-edged sword is the Word of God. And don't you love the fact that it's got two edges? Have you ever thought about what is it? What, what, what does that mean? You know what God's trying to show you? 
is it cuts both ways. It's a sharp, two-edged sword, and it can come one way and it can wound a man. It can come back the other way and it can heal a man. On September 24th, 1972, there was a a man by the name of Del Faisenfeld who came to a, a gathering of people that where I was in Miami, Florida, and the dude came wielding a sword, man. And there I was in that room, and you know what he did? He took that sword, and man, he whacked that thing that way, and you know what it did? Wham! It hit me, man. And it, it wounded me. I mean, it it opened me up, and it showed me who I was. It showed me my need. I mean, it cut me to the very quick, man. And you know what I did when I saw me? I said, Woe is me. And I called upon the name of the Lord. And you know what happened? All of a sudden, that sword came back the other way. And it healed me. Or in the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, I was born again by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. You see, what happens to a lot of people is it happens around here all the time. It's probably, listen, probably going to happen in here tonight what what happens is is someone pulls out a sword the word of god the two-edged sword you're sitting in a service just like this and man here it comes and it wounds you but some folks rather than looking as the word of god has opened them up what they do rather than humble themselves, what they do is they they try to fight back, don't they? And you know what happens? That Word of God just keeps coming down, coming down that same way until it finally kills them and a man dies in his sins. But you know what John lets us know here? That even then, the Word of God isn't finished with him because, listen, if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, when you stand before the glorified Christ and He looks at you with those eyes as flames of fire and He opens His mouth, you know what? You're going to face the Word of God again. You're still going to face that sharp, two-edged sword. Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 48, listen to it, He that rejecteth Me and receiveth not my words, hath one that judge him. Listen. Who is that one that judges him? The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. I'm telling you folks, you can't get away from the two-edged sword. as it wounds you, as it opens you up to show you your need and show you who Christ is and shows you what He has done. Hey, don't fight it, man. Call upon the name of the Lord and what you'll find is the most incredible thing in all the world, how that sword, just like a surgeon's scalpel, can do spiritual surgery on you to heal you. While you're opened up, you know what He does? He comes inside of you. It seals you with the Holy Spirit. Incredible. And then John adds one one final thing about the, the glory that he saw of his person. The end of verse 16. 
His countenance. And His countenance was as the sun shineth in His strength. Yesterday, a beautiful day yesterday. Too humid today. It was a little bit like Florida. It was Florida hot today. Yesterday was a great day. And, and you know, I don't know if you've ever done it on a, on a bright, clear, sunshiny day. You get out there. Have you ever just looked right into the sun? I mean, it's a stupid thing to do. <laughs> I mean, you, you can't do it for long. And I mean, and if you do it for any length of time at all, I mean, just for a split second, I mean, everywhere you look, you know, it's... <laughs> it, it, you, can't, you can't get away from it, man. That's, that's the way John says, that's the way it was when I saw his, his countenance, when I saw the appearance of the glorified Christ there. I mean, bam! It, I felt like, uh, uh, sorry, I woke some of y'all up. I, I, I looked at him, and it was as the sun. Now, now, now listen, he's not just using, you know, pretty little phrases here, guys. He says it was. It was so incredible. It was as the sun... And look at the end of verse 16 again. It says, as the sun shineth in what? In its strength? His strength. You know why it's masculine? It's masculine because the sun is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back to the last book of the Old Testament. Just go to Matthew and, and look to the left. You'll be right there. Last chapter in, in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. Okay, now, and as you turn there, let me, let me remind you. Remember what we saw earlier that from John chapter 9 and verse 5? Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He left in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, and we entered at that period of time what is known biblically as a spiritual nighttime. Okay, well, this is the night, and you can see that consistently used in the book of Romans, 1 Thessalonians, it's, 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 it's all over the New Testament. Okay? We're living right now in a spiritual and a biblical nighttime. But what we're anticipating, as we saw this morning, what we're anticipating is the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. Okay? It's nighttime right now. We're waiting for the day of the Lord. Now, if it's night and we're anticipating the day of the Lord, then what has to happen? The sun has to rise, right? I mean, boy, I mean, we, I could go over into the little kids' class tonight and I could get that response out of them. Everybody knows that, okay? Now, now watch how the Lord prompts Malachi to write about the day of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. He says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the sun, the capital S-U-N, shall the sun of righteousness arise with healing, in his wings. It's nighttime now, but the sun of righteousness is soon going to rise and it will be daytime. The day of the Lord. Because when he comes back, he is not coming veiled in a body of human flesh next time. He'll arise on this planet the same way John saw him 1902 years ago. 
as the sun of righteousness, the sun as it shineth in his strength, John says. That's why it's the day of the Lord, because he's coming in all of his power, in all majesty, in all glory. So that's the person of the revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now let's look at a a fifth thing. Roman numeral 5 on your outline. The reaction to the revelation. The reaction to the revelation. Now first of all, let's notice John's reaction to the revelation of the glorified Christ. Verse 17 says, And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as dead. Now guys, remember, this is the one who laid His head on Jesus' breast. And John says, oh my goodness, man. When I, when I saw Him, when I saw Him in all of His glory, I fell at His feet as dead. He's literally, he's scared to death. I fell at His feet as dead. Afraid to even move a muscle. A man who had walked with the Lord for all of these years, but my goodness, he just was absolutely overwhelmed when he saw him for who he really was and is. He said, I fell at at his feet as as dead. I I don't want to be too gory with you, but back in April, the pastors, uh, we went to to Kansas City for a a conference there, and we we flew into the airport, we we had to rent a vehicle, took a long time, we were starving, and so we we went uh, we went to an olive garden to kind of freshen up our breath just a little bit. And so we, we we scarfed down, you know, the, the all you can eat salad and, and soup, and we, we walk out. And as we're walking out, there's all these cops that are that are coming, you know, to the parking lot there. And we're like, wow, man, it sounds like they're, you know, we walk around the corner, and here is a guy that had committed suicide. I mean, right in the parking lot. I mean, you know, and oh my goodness, man, we we walked over there, and I mean, just I'd lost my appetite. I lost it in there, but I was about ready to lose my cookies there. And and you know what? As I'm as I'm just looking at him, I I don't don't know. And I've I've been around, you know, I've, I've been with some of you folks when when a loved one has died but boy i'm telling you it, it it was it was wild man i just i was overwhelmed with how still i mean you know you watch people sleep and they're not moving but man i'm telling you there's no still like the still of a dead person i mean it, it was it, it was wild and, and and that's what john says I, I can't describe it. 
when I, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Oh, you, you hear all the people talk about, you know, their buddy Jesus and, you know, the man upstairs. And, and oh, you know what? Never seen, never seen Jesus the way that John saw Jesus. Some of us having a real hard time dealing with, with sin in our life. You know what the problem is, y'all? We've never really never really seen him for who he is we've seen nice little pictures and we've we've read nice little stories and we're we're memorizing all the right verses for discipleship but some of us have yet to really see him because you know what will happen to you when you really see him you'll die do you remember what it said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15? It says that he died so that we could stop living for ourselves. And some of us has, have grabbed the gift of eternal life and continued to walk down the same stinking path, living for ourselves just like we did when we were a lost person and yet we claim that the risen glorified Christ lives inside of us go figure yeah we can read through it and, and you know what I, I'm, I'm telling you I, I, I feel terrible tonight because I'm so inept to really communicate to you what it was that, that John saw, because I know that if I had done the job the way that I needed to, we'd all be on the deck right now. We'd all be as low as we could possibly be at his feet, as dead. John says, I was just totally freaked. Now, folks, if John, with the walk that this guy had with the Lord, if John is caught up and he has his eyes open and he beholds the glorified Christ and he's freaked. What do you think you'd be right now? To be transported out of this room with your life in the condition that it's in and bam! You're in the presence of the glorified Christ. But this is, this is so beautiful. Watch, watch Jesus' reaction to John. John said, He laid His right hand upon me. If you'll check it out in the Bible, it's the arm of power. The right hand. John says, and this is what he said to me. Oh, don't you love this, y'all? I mean, you see it? Fear not. And you know what? Jesus doesn't just sit up on the throne with John down at his feet and say, Hey, John, don't worry about it. Hey, John, fear not. You know what he says? John said, He touched me. 
he, he lays his right hand upon him. Yet you know what? Jesus has got to, to lean over from his throne to get down to where at his feet. And, and John says he, he, he leans over and, and he, he, he touches me with his right hand. And he says, hey, John, you don't need to be afraid. And watch the reason at the end of verse 17. I'm the first and the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Thank you. Good place for an amen right there because Jesus himself said amen to that. (laughs) I love it. I'm he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And have, John, I have the keys of hell and of death. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, John, listen. It's me. It's me. I I am the first and the last. I I am the everlasting one. But but listen. I'm the same one that you saw in my physical body when I lived on the earth. I'm the same one that you watched die on the cross. I'm he that liveth and was dead. And John, check this out. I'm alive forevermore. That's not going to ever happen again, John. Amen? Amen, John. And I want you to know something else, John. I have the keys of hell. I'm calling the shots, John. So listen, you don't have to be afraid. Wow. You know what? The, the thing that I, I fear in, in coming to this is that some of us are going to want to run to this without ever seeing the glorified Christ and falling at His feet is dead and you can have a wonderful little emotional bath and 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 oh yes I just love that song and have a nice little goosebump but you know what you really don't have the Lord touch you and speak to you those words until you see him until you fall like John at his feet as dead. Man, I, 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 you know what I wish? I, I wish that, that what John is talking about here would so grip this church, would so grip us, that we don't just pop in here next Sunday, oh, let's go into Revelation 2 and 3, let's get through this book. What I wish is some of you would just fall into Revelation chapter 1. Cry out to God. Oh, God, help me to see you for who you are so that I can see me for who I am so that I can humble myself and stop having all of the thoughts of pride that I've been dealing with in my life so that you can touch me and assure me. Speak peace to me. Fell at his feet. is dead. And then we'll quickly hit this, this last one. You see, I didn't tell you how long it was going to take us to get through chapter 1 today. Let's look at this last thing, number 6 on your outline, the outline. 
of the revelation. And this, of course, is, is verse 19. Look at it. It says to him, Okay, now John, here's the plan. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now folks, you can't do any better than God's outline. Okay? And what He does is He gives us right there His outline for the book of Revelation. So that's the outline we're going to follow. So what does that mean? Okay, what, what does that do for us? What is, why is verse 19 there? Well, you remember this morning I, I told you what was going on back in verse 10? Now, now listen very carefully. This is real simple. Everybody under the sun misses this. And so what they do is they do not rightly divide the book of Revelation and they get themselves all messed up in this book. What he is saying is, John, I want you to write in three tenses that which you've seen and that which is going on right now and the things that are going to be hereafter. But you see, you cannot, you cannot put John in 95 A.D. to write in those three tenses because when he gets the Revelation, he's not in 95 A.D. Do you remember? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 says that what has happened is the Spirit of God has catapulted him to the time of the day of the Lord. And from the standpoint of the day of the Lord, he is to write in those three tenses. Now, something interesting about the book of Revelation, we noted this when we were going through our study of church history, God, in every book of the Bible, if you'll study it long enough, what you'll find is that God gives you the keys that you need to rightly divide His word of truth. Now, He's commanded you to do that, but if you'll study it long enough, like that same verse commands, what you'll see is that the Lord shows you how to do it. And in Revelation, the book of Revelation, there's something that happens two times. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, heaven opens. It opens again in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. It's only two times that it happens in the entire book. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, heaven opens and somebody goes up. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, heaven opens and somebody comes down. What you've got in Revelation 4.1 is John, who is a picture of the church, caught up. It's the rapture of the church. It's set for you right there. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. It's the second coming of Christ. Now watch this. Do you see what God did for us right there? He just divided the book into three sections. Okay? You've got the church age, which culminates with the rapture, then the tribulation period, which culminates with the second coming, and then you've got the millennium, the new heaven, new earth, and then on into eternity. And what God is showing John here, what He's showing us so that we don't get off base, so that we don't lose our bearings here, He's saying, now listen, here's the way I've divided this thing. I've taken John to the day of the Lord. So, from that standpoint, he is to write about that which has been. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's the church age. Revelation chapter 4 through 19 is the day of the Lord. The tribulation culminating with the second coming. And that which shall be hereafter, chapter 20, the millennium, chapter 21, the new heaven and new earth, chapter 22, eternity. And that's the outline. I mean, it's, it's that simple. And you know what? Once you, once you get that, 
you go to this book, and man, there ain't a problem in the world being able to figure out exactly where you are at any given time. But you know what? You miss that point, and you're going to have all kinds of problems when you deal with this book. And so that's the outline of the book of Revelation. I know it's. I, I know we, we've we've covered a lot of ground today, and now it's about over. And, and I just want to strongly urge you: let's don't just pass over what was so overwhelming to John. You know what? I I, I can I, I I've read it. And I've studied it, and it's it's impacted me. I, I I'll just tell you now. I haven't had the reaction that John had yet, and and I know I I understand, folks. Okay, I'm not trying to be you know real freaky and mystical with you. I I know that as long as we are in these bodies and we have these finite minds that we have I, I understand that there's going to be limits but I'll just tell you this I do believe that most of the time our view of God the Lord Jesus Christ is far 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 too low would you agree with that and we'll know we, we will know that we've seen Him as He is when we're dead. And I'm not talking physically. I'm talking about when we die to ourselves and we cease living for ourselves. Let's bow our heads together. And I would like to just give you a moment while the Spirit of God is at work in you and before we haul off and fellowship and all, and all that's, oh, that's wonderful. I'm not trying to deny that that's one of the purposes that we come, but I would like for us to just, just have a moment of, of silence, a moment that we spend w- with the Lord and allow Him to talk to us about our lives and what needs to happen in, in our lives. Those of you that have come to be baptized tonight, why don't you go ahead and make your way back? But the rest of us, let's let's just come before the glorified Christ.